So I wanted to share today on anxiety, fear, and faith. And so recently, I was uh, invited for the third time to speak at Mindscape. Mindscape is a forum, a mental health forum that DHR and Tropical put together over at the island. But what I want to talk about is that when I got there, the keynote speaker sounded familiar. As I walked into the room, I got there, he had already started, and his voice sounded familiar to me, and uh, I immediately connected him to a video that I had seen on YouTube one day, this uh, YouTube channel, Goldcast, that usually puts out inspirational stuff, and I remembered his voice. And it was him, the guy's name is Kevin Hines. He said that he was 19 years old, living in San Francisco, and he was going through some very difficult times in his life, suffering from anxiety, depression, fear, hopelessness, uh, a lack of purpose, a lot of self-doubt. His mental constructs and paradigms were really messed up. And so one day he decided, he said, well, you know, since life has no meaning, I might as well end it. And so he decided to get on the bus and make his way to the Golden Gate Bridge. And he said, well, if I jump off the Golden Gate, surely I'll die. And so I'll end all of this. I won't have to put up with life. And so he got on the bus, made his way to the Golden Gate. He says, I knew that I was noticeably anxious. I was noticeably afraid to the people around me. I knew that they could see in me that something was not right. He says, but yet nobody stopped to ask me, are you okay? He said, the bus driver knew that I was getting off right by the Golden Gate. And so when he came to a stop, he says, I was glued to the seat. I hesitated. I couldn't get out. I was even afraid to get off the bus. And the bus driver turned off and said, hey, kid, get off the bus. He said, the person sitting next to me noticed that I was shaking. And rather than saying, young man, is there, are you okay? Is there something that I can do for you? He said, even he told me to get off the bus. He says, as I made my way to the edge of the Golden Gate Bridge, people were standing there. There were tourists everywhere. As I got to the Golden Gate to the very edge and I grabbed a hold of the side and I put one foot on top, about to jump over, he said, nobody stopped me. As a matter of fact, they all turned to see the spectacle. Now, that was in 2001. Had this happened yesterday, people would have taken out their phones and uploaded their videos to TikTok because that's what people do today. We've lost our sensitivity. We've lost, some people have lost their hearts. And so he's standing on the Golden Gate Bridge and he grabs a hold of it and he jumps. Mind you, only 1% of the people that jump off the Golden Gate ever live. 1%. He jumped off. He describes falling into the water as feeling a vacuum that sucked him all the way 70 feet down into the water. And he said that his back shattered. It felt like glass. He had broken the lower part of his vertebrae. Not being able to move his legs, he started inside screaming and shouting out to God, God, save me, God, help me. I started crying out to God, he said. He says, and then all of a sudden, I felt something that was very big underneath me swimming around me. And I thought to myself, oh, what a way to die. I'm going to be eaten by a shark. He said, and that thing kept on swimming around and around. And as I was on the inside crying out to God, a woman who was on the Golden Gate, who had seen me plunge into the waters, she said, called a friend who was on the Coast Guard who happened to be nearby. And they, met the, they, they sped over to where he had jumped into the water. And while all of this was happening, Kevin is in the water 70 feet down and this thing starts to swirl around him, creating a vortex or a force that propelled him up and up and up and up all the way 70 feet up to the surface of the water and kept him afloat until the Coast Guard pulled him out. It wasn't a shark, it was a sea lion. This sea lion just went round and around and around and kept him afloat and he was rescued. Of course, after that, Kevin would spend a lengthy time in the hospital, recovery, therapy, and he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that what he had to do in life, his purpose was to go around and create awareness. Awareness. Now, why am I sharing this story with you? Well, Kevin had no hope. Kevin had no vision for his life. The scripture is very clear about that. It says, Proverbs 2019 says, 2918 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. People die. Not literally, but people die. Do you know how many people commit suicide in the United States every day? No, no. Every 11 minutes, one person dies. Do you know how many per day? 125 people commit suicide daily. Do you know how many per year? 45,576. Do you know why? Because people just stood there and said nothing. Because nobody cared. Now, can you tell that I'm passionate about this? Very. Because there are people in this room. There are people at your workplace. There are people in your classrooms, those of you who are teachers. We have this issue where we don't have trauma-informed education in the workplace, in schools, in churches. We don't have it. And therefore, these people go below the radar and end up killing themselves because you didn't know that 45,576 people take their lives every year in the United States alone. You didn't know that because they go under the radar. This guy had no vision. He had no purpose. He had no vision. And when there's no vision, people perish, not necessarily in the physical realm, but also in the spiritual and the mental realm. People perish. People die. And they just go through life. They're, they're, uh, they're what, what, uh, what some people would call, <laughs> the young folks are going to understand this, they become NPCs. You all know what that is? What is it? Do you, non-playable, non-playable character. It's like when you play a video game. Those fillers that are just in the background, they don't do anything. They're just in the, a non-playable character. And they just go through life because there was no vision. Now listen, the African Impala, and I've shared this story so many times, the African Impala lives in Africa, of course, is about this, this small, can jump eight feet high, 20 feet across. Predators have a hard time catching up to the Impala. But... When the impala is brought into captivity, all it takes is a fence about two feet taller than the impala to hold the impala in and hold it, hold it captive. Only two feet high, and you're asking, so wait, hold it. That would be maybe about five feet high. The impala's about three feet, five feet high, but you said he can jump eight feet high. Why does a wall have the power to contain the impala and hold it captive? when they bring it like to a zoo? Well, because the fence is not a chain link fence. It's not a translucent fence. The fence is actually a solid concrete fence. Do you know why it's solid? Because if the Impala can't see what's on the other side, the Impala won't jump. Because it has no what? No vision. Some Christians are like that. If we can't see what's on the other side, we don't jump. Our faith is fueled by the vision that God gives us. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Someone once said that living life with no vision is just passing time. It's just passing time. Or even worse, it makes life aimless and you're susceptible to fall into the philosophies and agenda of the world that we're living in today. How many of you know that there is an agenda? How many of you know that we are being hit left and right with philosophies and ideologies. How many of you know that? I mean, if you don't know that, it's because you've been living in a cave somewhere. But how many of you know this, that it's left and right? And some people, they just don't want to hear it. They're like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know about it. It doesn't affect me. I don't have kids. It doesn't affect me. It only does affect you. It does. And I've gotten to the point in my life where I'm old enough that I just, I'm not going to tippy-toe around these things. I'm just going to speak it straight. Some people need to wake up and see that the enemy is coming at you left and right, and you're just taking all those strikes straight to the head. And when I say the head, I'm meaning your mind. And the vision that God has for you, you don't even know what it is because you're coming into alignment with the vision that the world is giving you. And I have these parents who bring kids into therapy with me, and they throw them into, to, to want to throw them into my, my office and say, fix my kid. Fix your kid? Let me fix you first. <laughs> of the time, you are the problem. And I say that very respectfully. 90% of the time, you are the problem. Someone said, hey, Milton, how do I, 
How do I uh, better connect with my child? How do I, my child has rebelled against me a little bit. How do I connect with my child? You know, it's very simple. Put down your phone. Look at them in the eyes. And those hearts will start turning back to you. But just like Corey Ten Boom said, if the devil can't make you bad, the devil will make you busy. We become so engrossed in busyness that we no longer put down the phones or the devices, or we're so focused on work because we need more, 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 and more. And when you made 50, 50 wasn't enough. And when you made 70, 70 wasn't enough. And when you made 100, 100 wasn't enough. It's never going to be enough. Because fulfillment comes through the Lord. And so when we're constantly distracted and busy, the, the ones that suffer the most are our children. Milton, how, how do you, how do you what, what relationship should I cultivate in the home? Should I cultivate the relationship with my children? No, you should cultivate the relationship with your spouse. Because as you love your spouse, you're loving your children. You can be a phenomenal dad, a great provider. You can be there for all the t-ball games and do all these things and hate your wife and you're causing a lot of damage to your children. You can be a phenomenal mother, caring, doting, and loving, and there all the time, and hate your husband, and you're causing damage to your children. The reason kids rebel against their parents is not because they were bad parents. The reason they rebel against their parents is because they saw dad mistreating mom and mom disrespecting dad. That's it. Y'all got quiet on me. Now, you probably, I'm very passionate about, you know, education. I'm the head of school of a Christian school. Former student sitting right there in the crowd. One of my best. One of my best. <laughs> I won't tell you the name of the school because I don't want to use this platform to promote it. But I will tell you, if you want to know the name of the school, ask Pastor John where his grandkids go. <laughs> ask Pastor Ricky where his daughter goes. A lot of the people who are here in the church, where their kids go? <laughs> Anyways, but I won't get into that. See, the problem with, with us today with vision, you know, vision when we don't have, when it creates anxiety, it creates fear, it creates depression, it creates an, an unsettled, restless, and anxious heart when we don't have vision. Because even when the world is upside down, when you have vision, you can hold on to that, and that will fuel your faith. But when our life is upside down, that's what you call living a dysfunctional life. Dysfunctional life. You know what dysfunction is? Something that's not what? Functional, right? Dysfunction. Dysfunction. Do you know what disease means? Without ease. Disease, without ease. Dysfunctional, without function. Something that's flawed, something that's broken. When your life is not, as a Christian, when your life is not in alignment with God's word, your life is dysfunctional. And I have a definition up there on the screen. Dysfunction creates a distorted perception of who God is and who you are in him. Dysfunction. When your life is upside down, when you place your priorities in the wrong order, when work and doing and other, doing things and getting the job done and making money is at the top of your priorities, you are dysfunctional. Nobody said amen to that, right? But that's okay. You are dysfunctional. When you don't, as a Christian, I say this again, if you're not a Christian, this doesn't pertain to you. If you are a Christian, if you are not in alignment with God's word, you are dysfunctional. And dysfunction will always breed distortion, a skewed perception of who you are in God and who he is in you. And then you feel hopeless. And then you feel like Kevin Hines and you want to jump off the golden gate because you're anxious and fearful and uneasy and you have apprehensions and then you start catastrophizing. Everything is a catastrophe. You start catastrophizing. It's not the glass half full, it's half empty. It's always worst case scenario. It's always devil's advocate. It's always negative, it's pessimistic. When you are living a dysfunctional life, anxiety becomes a disorder when it becomes so intense that it dominates the individual's thoughts, feelings, and actions. Everyone in this room has some kind of disorder. Everyone, all of us. My wife is somewhere in the group, in the crowd, and she would say, yes, I have issues. It's a joke, you can laugh. <laughs> we all have issues. 
Your issue becomes a disorder the moment that it affects your social life. That's when it becomes a disorder. When you can't take the next step because you're afraid. That's when it becomes a disorder. When it starts to control your life, that's when it becomes a disorder. Gideon was in a hole, hiding, threshing wheat, hiding in a hole. Gideon was fearful because the Midianites had destroyed everything for years. And he was in a hole, and he was hiding, and he knew of God, and he had heard of God, he had heard from God, but he was hiding, he was anxious, he was afraid. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I'm going to say it again. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Gideon, the Lord is with you. He was in a hole. You mighty warrior. You know what he said? He looked up. The Bible says that he said, pardon me. Pardon me. (laughs) Pardon me. He said, let me remind you, angel of the Lord. My tribe is the least in the Manasseh, and I am the least of my tribe. In other words, I'm scum of the earth, and you're calling me a mighty warrior? What? You you got the wrong person. Pardon me? God had to speak to Gideon so loud, not literally, but so loud that his vision would come into alignment with God's word and his purpose so that he would become a mighty man of God. You see it with David in the Psalms. Psalm 55, four through five. David says, my heart pounds in my chest. The terror of death assaults me. Fear and trembling overwhelm me and I can't stop shaking. This is David, who God called a man after his own heart. He says, my heart is shaking. I'm trembling. I can't stop this. Remember when he was, when he was at uh, Ziglag and he's standing there and he says, and David cried until he had no more tears to cry. And then they wanted his, his warriors wanted to kill him. They wanted to stone him to death. And he says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God and in him found strength. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. He came into alignment with God and he was strengthened. Throughout the Bible, there are people who had suicidal ideation. You have Rebecca, Solomon, Elijah, Job. You have Jonah, Paul. Yes, all of them thought that it would be better off for them to die than to live. All of them. Remember Paul? Lord, I've cried out to you. How many times? Three times. Please remove this thorn in my flesh, this messenger from Satan that is constantly messing with me. He says, I can't anymore. Remove it. And what did God say? And I just, I, you know, I know probably from the heavens and the voice, but I just imagine a very tender voice saying, but Paul, Paul, my grace is sufficient because when you are weak, my strength is made perfect in you. Amen? But they all went through that moment. You see, I've read books written by Christian authors that say that fear, that there is good fear and that there is bad fear. That's not true. Fear is bad. Fear is bad. If you remember being afraid of the kukui, fear is bad. Fear is bad. And one of, a brother in Christ outside just a while ago told me, he says, and you know who's put that fear in our minds? He says, most of the time it's our own parents. If you don't behave, the monster that's in the closet is going to get you. And if you're Mexican, pues es el cucuy. And if you're from Nuevo León, es la mano pachona. (laughs) Arriba los tigres. Okay. (laughs) The fear, fear is not of God. And I can prove it to you. Paul told Timothy, Timothy was young, his disciple, he was afraid. What did he say? For God has not given you a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power, love, and a sound mind. A sound mind. You have a sound mind, Timothy. Even when you think you're crazy, you have a sound mind, Timothy. God has given you power, love, and a sound mind, Timothy. Here's what I tell you. I'm going to give this to you for free. I'm not going to charge you for this. So most of, the, most of the week, I'm the head of school. 
I have two-year-olds all the way through high school students. It's a Christian school. And then a day and a half, I do therapy, and that's all I do. And so I meet with people, all ages, well, not all ages, starting like at uh, 14 and older. And here's one of the things that I ask them to do. Now, this is, I told the first service I was going to give this to them for free, and then I didn't give it to them. I'm thinking, did I ever tell them? I didn't tell them, so I'm going to tell you. Okay. (laughs) You need to understand this. Whatever's holding you back, if you're not able to define it, you can't defeat it. I'm going to say that again because you're not understanding this. Listen. If you are unable or unwilling, a lot of people are unwilling because they don't want to face the truth, right? Because you can't handle the truth, right? (laughs) Some of you who are old like me understand why I said that. Um, Some of the Gen Zs did did, or like, I don't know why he said that. Gen Zs. Um, What was I saying? Oh, so... (laughs) If you can't define it, you can't defeat it. So here's what you do. As a Christian, and this is why Christian therapy is important. I I need to say this. You can have Jesus and a therapist. I didn't hear any amens. Amen. You can have Jesus and a therapist, and that's okay. But just make sure that the person that you see is someone who has a biblical worldview, who has a... Christocentric worldview to where Christ is in the middle. Otherwise, you will be led, oftentimes, astray. So make sure that the person that you're seeing has a biblical worldview. Very important. Okay. So here's what you do. I tell people, okay, and some of you are in the room and you're like, yeah, you told me to do that too and it's, it's working. You take a piece. Thank you. Thank you, sister. Say, say amen. Praise the Lord, right? <laughs> So you grab a piece of paper and you create four columns. Very simple. If you can't define it, you can't defeat it. Four columns. The first column is your trigger. What is my trigger? Why do I feel, why am I afraid? What causes me to feel fear? Or whatever it is, anxiety, depression, uh, anger, resentment. What what is the trigger? What is that trigger? Okay, so whatever it is, first column is your trigger. Second column is the emotion that it evokes. What are you feeling? Anger, fear, resentment, second column. Third column, going through this quite quickly because of time. The third column is what does the word of God say about that. So second column says fear. Okay, a lot of people going back from the pandemic, going back into the classroom, a lot of teachers were afraid to go back into the classroom because, you know, because of COVID. And so what, what was the trigger? The trigger was going back to school, being in a classroom full of you know, people, the fear of, 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 of getting you know, COVID. And so fear is the second column and that's the emotion. The third column is what does the word of God say about that? Okay, word of God says, for God has not given me a spirit of fear, timidity, but power, love, and sound mind. There are 365 fear knots in the Bible. Jesus, when Jesus would go before the disciples, he would start out by saying, he wouldn't say, hey guys, how are y'all doing? He would say, fear not, don't be afraid, don't be anxious, fret not. That, that was how Jesus would greet his disciples. I mean, Jesus would use that a lot because he knew that fear is, is an imminent thing that happens to people, you know, when they are, when they are not deep-rooted, you know, in, in, in our case, in the Word of God. And so, first column, trigger. Second column is what emotion. Third column is what does Scripture say about that? And you pick the Scripture that speaks to you. Get, get a promise book and go to the table of contents and look for fear, page 30, and all the Scripture that, that, that talk about fear. Pick the one that speaks to you. Fourth column is what should I feel? So if I'm afraid, what should I feel as a Christian? Well, I should feel what power, sound, and power, love, and a sound mind, or courage. Uh, you know, Joshua. What is it? Joshua one nine somewhere around there. For I have not commanded you. For have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Fear not, for the Lord thy God is with you wherever you may go. And so, what do I do? I rehearse, 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 rehearse. There's a thing called there's a thing called neuroplasticity. And, and neuroplasticity comes from neurons and plastic. And so neuroplasticity is the brain's superpower to reorganize itself, okay? I love neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity gives people hope, and it's connected to Romans 12 too. Don't conform to the ways of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve God's perfect, pleasing, good will for your life. I'm wow. going fast. Thank you. I'm going fast because I need to get this out because somebody needs to hear this. Neuroplasticity gives you hope. That's a scientific term. But we were created by God. God created science. So everything that we see in science can be connected to Scripture. Everything. And so when somebody says, you're already screwed up because you come from a really bad family, your root is, is, is rotten, or you have a lot of trauma, or you did drugs and your brain is messed up, or you had an accident, you had TBI, traumatic brain injury, you're never going to be the same again. That's not true. 
That's not true. That's a lie from the pit of hell. If anybody's ever told you that, anyone who has ever told you that. Because neuroplasticity is a brain superpower to reorganize itself. And so there's a thing called the synaptic process. And that's the connection between, that's the messaging that goes between neurons. And so you can weaken a synapsis or you can strengthen a synapsis. And how do you do that? You weaken a synapsis by simply stop thinking those things, okay? And how do you strengthen a new synapsis? By repeating those things. And so what do I do? If I'm constantly afraid, I'm going to stop repeating that fear to myself over and over and over again. And I'm going to choose, and this is really hard, 21 days to break it, 63 days to a establish it, I'm going to repeat that one thing that God says about me over and over and over until I create a new synapsis in my mind, okay? You need to understand that. I didn't share that in the first message. I'm sharing that with you because somebody needed to hear that. And so there's this thing called fear. Of course, fear uh, is something that's not God-given. It's not something that he's put in us, but we've acquired that over time. We've acquired that because if you look at, would you please show the tip of the iceberg, please? Um, as you look at this right here, this picture, uh, that's the tip of the iceberg. My wife, uh, my wife and I were traveling in Alaska one day. We were on a boat, and, and I remember we came close to the, Glendahal, uh, the, the Mendelhall Glacier, and the captain said, look to your right, the Mendelhall Glacier. Look to your left, and you'll see the proverbial tip of the iceberg. And I looked over. That's not the exact picture, but that's what it looked like. And I looked over, and I thought, well, that looks pretty cool. It's a you know, big chunk of ice. And, uh, and he said, well, it may not look, you know, amazing on, on the top. He says, but do you remember the movie Titanic? Yes. Well, what sunk the Titanic was, it was on top of what was underneath. He says, so let me show you a picture of what's underneath the iceberg. And so the iceberg has, its mass is 90% underwater. There's a reason I'm sharing this with you, okay? 90% uh, of the mass is underwater, the 10% is on top. Now, when you think about the way that we're wired the way that we're wired is this way. We have two parts of our mind. We have the conscious mind and we have the subconscious mind. The, the, the conscious mind is, and please leave the, the well, I know you're going to have to take it down because of the video, but keep in mind that the top represents the conscious, the bottom is the subconscious. And so the top part is if, if, uh, if we were to measure the speed between neurons, uh, the speed would be that the, 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 the messaging that occurs between neurons travels at 100 miles an hour versus the subconscious mind at 100,000 miles an hour. In other words, most of what we do is based off of the bottom part, the subconscious mind. What's in the subconscious mind is everything that was formed in us the first, most formative years of our life. That's where we have fears, biases, mental constructs, paradigms, uh, lots of junk, okay? It's there. That's the kukui is living inside your subconscious mind. You can, you can take that down now. Thank you. That's the kukui is living in the subconscious mind, all right? Everything, all your fears and biases, everything that holds you back and keeps you back is living there. It's where it's at. And so how do I rewire that? How do I rewire that? By not thinking of those things. What did Paul say? This is a whole different sermon. What did Paul say? Paul said, whatever's noble, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's worthy of praise, think about those things. I'm going to say it again. Whatever's noble, whatever's, whatever's lovely, whatever's uh, admirable and worthy of praise, think about those things. So I have to ask myself the question. What I'm thinking right now that's causing me to shake and tremble, is it... A, B, C, and D. No, I shouldn't think of those things. So what do I think about? What does God say about this situation that I'm in? I'm going to focus on those things. And as I do that, I'm creating new, new wiring in my brain. That's called neuroplasticity, okay? Neuroplasticity. And so I'm creating new connections. It's, it's, picture it this way. If you show up to a park, let's say that you live somewhere in, in, in I don't know, in Colorado. We love going Colorado and going up the mountains over there, walking the trails. If you go in Colorado and you come to a trail that you've never been to before, and you start walking that trail because somebody told you that if you go down that trail, you can end up at this beautiful place, waterfall, whatever. And you go to that trail, and then you end up at a dead end. You're like, where's, where's that thing that they told me what I was going to see? Well, and then I leave, and then I come back the next day, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to try this again. And I go back to the same trail. Guess what? I'm going to end up at the same place. And so what do I need to do? The reason that I took that trail was because there's already a, a rut in the ground. There's already erosion. People have already tread on it, walked on it, traversed on it, and so there's no grass. It's easy. What's difficult is making up my mind that I'm not going to walk that trail anymore and that I'm going to create my own trail. And so now I have to turn around and I see all the brush and I see the weeds and I go, oh no, this is going to be really hard, but it's worth it. 
because I know that I'm creating a neutral and that neutral is going to take me to that beautiful place that I want to see. So I start doing that and over time, as I'm traversing the ground, I'm starting to create a rut, a groove, and that's what happens in our mind. But I have to start. If I'm always going to the same, if I always do what I've always done, if I always think what I've always thought, I will always get what I've always gotten. I'm not upset I love you. I'm just passionate because I see people stuck and I see them and I go, if I could only tell you, but as a therapist, I can't tell you where you're stuck. You have to figure that out yourself. I can only ask you questions because then it won't work until you make the unconscious conscious. It will rule your mind or your, it will rule your life and you will call it your destiny. So I can only ask you questions, parables, stories. God did give us something called the HPA access, by the way, because you're thinking, okay, wait, hold it. So what about those moments where I'm feeling threatened and my heart starts pounding and I get tunnel vision, my, my pupils dilate and I start, I break out into a cold sweat and my, my muscles tighten up. What about that? Well, there's something called the HPA access. That's a big word. Hypothalamic pituitary adrenal reaction. Can you say that five times? <laughs> huh? Yeah? <laughs> My son says, Dad, you memorize all these big words just because you want to sound fancy. I have them in Spanish too. Esternocleidomastoideo. I can say it too. No, but that's a true. The HPA axis is a reaction that we have. It's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal reaction. And so hypothalamus, the pituitary, the mother gland, or the, the, you know, the, the master gland, and what happens is that when we're in a moment of threat, when we're threatened, we're held, held up at gunpoint or we're being chased by a bear or a dog or someone cuts us off on the road and we feel like we're going to crash, then we are, our pupils dilate instantaneously and we go into this thing called an adrenaline rush. That's God-given. God created us that way for those moments. And that's when we develop this acute focus and our, our muscles get tight and we develop this supernatural strength. Moms that have been in car accidents and their cars flip over and their babies are still inside and they manage to break windows and turn over cars and do all these things to rescue their babies. That's part of that reaction that God made us. That's how we're wired. The problem is when you're constantly living in that state. When the kid comes home and he comes home to an abusive home and he goes into an adrenaline rush and his heart starts to palpitate because they're afraid. Or the wife comes home to an abusive husband, or the husband comes home to an abusive wife, whatever it is, and they, they start, you know, their hearts start to beat fast, and they, have, they dilate and all these things. That, that's not right. And so this HPA axis reaction has, is normal when it's under control. And God made us that way. But one of the things that we have to realize is that if we're led by circumstances and what we can see, boy, we're always going to be feeling like we're under threat. And that's why Paul says, for we, we, we walk by and not by, okay, so we walk by faith and not by sight. And so it's about not seeing on the outside, and I'm, and I'm kind of getting to that point. So it's not seeing on the outside. It's what I'm seeing on the inside, right? Faith is the, stuff, the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Exactly. Well, but God hasn't spoke to me like he spoke to Gideon. Well, that's because you haven't opened up your Bible. Because if you had opened up your Bible, you would realize that he, yes, he is speaking to you. He is speaking to you. But you have to open up your Bible. Coach John Wooden, one of my favorite uh, leadership mentors who's died many, many years ago, he led the UCLA basketball team to 10 championships. Coach Wooden was a strong Christian. And Coach Wooden would take his new recruits and he would say, those rookies, they would come in to the, to, the, to the gymnasium, and he would say, today, all we're going to focus on, boys, we're only going to focus on shooting the ball into the hoops. We're going to dribble, shoot, dribble, shoot. We're going to do that for three hours today. Tomorrow, we'll do it for four hours. So all we're going to do. I want to see how good you guys are. They would go, okay, coach, all right, let's get started. And then they would look around, no balls, no basketballs. Coach, where are the balls? Oh, no, I'm not giving you any basketballs today. Well, how are we practicing? He says, you're not. You're going to practice without one, so start dribbling. And he had these guys, these grown-ups, you know, doing this thing, and run with the ball, <laughs> shoot, do a layup, you know, and so they're doing this, and they didn't understand it, but after a few days of doing this, then they would oftentimes ask, why are we doing this? This is ridiculous. Coach Wooden would say this, this is powerful, listen. 
This is, can be uh, tied to uh, scripture too. Coach Wooden would look at them straight in the eyes and say, if you can see it happen on the inside, if you can see yourself making, what is it, score or shooting the, hoop, shooting the ball into the hoop, if you can see that on the inside, then it will happen on the outside. But if you can't see it happening on the inside, you will never see it happen on the outside. So how does that apply to scripture? We walk by faith, not by sight. I have to be able to see that thing happening on the inside before it happens on the outside. So I'm going to fast forward over to Elijah. Everything's going to start to make sense. Now the sermon is called, Go Back Again. Go Back Again. James 5, 17, 18 says, Elijah was a human being even as we are. In other words, he was as flawed as we can be. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Why did he pray that? Well, he prayed that because the people had turned away from God and started worshiping Baal. And they started worshiping another false god. And so Ahab was the king and his wife was Jezebel. Jezebel is the, most, the, the, the wickedest woman in the Bible. And I think the second one would be, the second wickedest woman in the Bible would be Job's wife. It's like, what on earth happened there? That's my question to God. It's like, Lord... If I ever had a question to ask, it's like, okay, he, Job lost everything, but he didn't lose his wife. <laughs> There's a reason I'm saying this, guys. Come on. So he's, he's, he's in the desert with a clay pot scratching the boils on his body, and his wife walks by and says, you're still there worshiping your God? Curse your God and die. She walks away. It's like, my question is, if his, his, his daughters were the most beautiful in the land and they were the sweetest things, and he took the, you know, he allowed the devil to take those, why did he leave her? <laughs> that was part of the test. I'm sure she was like the drip, drip, drip of a leaky faucet, like the Bible says. So anyways, why did I even share that? <laughs> so Elijah, <laughs> Elijah, oh, because of Jezebel. And so, so now you have Elijah is praying for the rain to stop, okay? And the rain stops, and the reason is because they were worshiping a false god. And so after three and a half years of drought, I mean, drought everywhere, you know, the animals are dying, people are dying, plants aren't growing, it's bad. And Elijah was sent to a brook, and ravens would go and feed him. And so God took care of him during this time. But after three and a half years, God says to him, he says, hey, go tell Ahab to eat and drink and get ready because the rain is coming, there was no sign of rain. And so he goes over to Ahab and he says, hey, I want to summon you guys, the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, and the other false god over to Mount Carmel. I want to have a showdown. It's like, you know, when you were in school and you had that bull and you're like, okay, let's take this outside, man. Let's take this outside. That's what he said. Let's take this outside. And he says, we're going to go to Mount Carmel. We're going to go up on that hill. We're going to build an altar. And he says, and whichever God consumes the offering with fire, is the real God. And I said, okay. They were confident that Baal was going to show up. And so they went over to that place and they, he let the prophets of Baal build their altar and they put their offering and they did everything. And then they started crying out to their God and they cried out and cried out for hours to the point of frustration. They tore their clothes, they cut themselves. And then uh, Elijah starts, you know, joking and he says, hey, so where's your God? Is he asleep? Did he go on vacation? You know, did he forget? What's going on? You know, he starts messing with them until finally they get to a point of frustration where they give up. He says, okay, now move over. Now it's my turn. And so he builds an altar, puts the offering on top, built, digs a trench, puts rocks around it, 12 stones representing 12 tribes. And then he tells his people, go fill up 12 buckets worth. There were four buckets, go three times, 12 buckets worth of water and dump it on the offering. Now, if you're going to start a fire, you don't, you're not going to pour water over your wood because then it won't start. But he says, go and do it. Because he wanted to show them how great his God is. And it kind of goes back, go fast forward to what Paul said. My God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all you could ever ask, think, or imagine. Okay? And so we know what happens next. He puts the offering there, puts water, and, and, then, and then calls God. And God, boom consumes not only the offering, consumes the wood, the offering, the rocks, the dirt, and all the water, like that. And so the prophets of Baal surrender, and they say, truly your God is God. 
And then he said, yeah, I'm not done yet. And he takes them and he slaughters all of the 450 prophets of Baal and the other ones that worship the other God. But what I want to focus is on this. God told him, go tell Ahab that the rain is coming. There was no sign of rain at all. Keep in mind that Elijah was a very nervous person. He was an anxious individual. After this whole scene, after he saw victory, he went off to hide in the wilderness from Jezebel because Jezebel wanted his head because of what he had done. And he's hiding after seeing a victory. And how many of you have had that experience to where in one area in your life you have victory and then you come to another one and it seems like defeat? You may be very successful in the workplace, but your home is just messed up. Or vice versa, right? That was Elijah. So he was a normal guy. He was an anxious person. But he connected to the vision that God gave him. God told him it's going to rain. So point number one is about faith. Because faith always trumps fear. Faith always overcomes fear. Faith expects the unforeseeable. In other words, Brother, I've been praying for my son that he would come home and that he would serve the Lord, but I'm just giving up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Remember what Coach Wooden said, if you can see it on the inside, you will see it manifest on the outside, but you got to see it. I've been praying for my husband. He's been on that lazy boy chair every Sunday. He doesn't come to church with us. I'm just about to give up on him. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep believing. You don't know. It's not in your time. It's not your way, but God will do it. If he told you so, he will do it. It might not seem so, it might not feel so, but if God said so, you better expect it. So faith expects the unforeseeable. So this is what happened. So now he has victory over the prophets of Baal. He slaughtered them. He's over there. He turns to his servant and he says, hey, God said there's going to be rain. I don't see anything, but I want you to go over, over to that side of the hill and go see if you can see any sign of rain. In other words, overcast, you know, some clouds, you know, can you smell the rain? Can you see the rain? Can you feel the rain? Is there anything there that would give us some hope? Now, he didn't need it because he knew that God would do what he said he was going to do. But here's what, here's what Elijah did. The Bible says, and sometimes we overlook this, we just read through it, we don't pay attention to it. It said, and Elijah went up to top, top of Mount Carmel, then he bowed down on the ground, and listen, he put his face between his knees. Can you picture that? You're thinking, I can't do that. I can't. Man, that requires a lot of flexibility, right? I don't know if that's a metaphor or if that was legit. But you know what that represents in our lives as a Christian? When you have to put your, your head between your knees? What happens when you put your head between your knees? You shut all the outside voices. You stop focusing on your circumstances because sometimes the people closest to you, sometimes your family is the worst. They're the ones like, oh man, I don't, God said he was going to heal you. You don't seem like you're healed. Todavía caminas todo chueco, hombre. Still got that limp. Yeah, but, but, but God is healing me. I, I don't know, I don't know. You need to put your head between your knees and shut out all those voices. And so that's what he did. And so he says, go over there and see if there's a sign of rain. He puts his head between his knees. The servant comes back and he says, hey, master, I don't see anything. He says, I, but I can smell the rain. I, I can feel the rain. I can see the rain. God told me, but it's on the inside, not on the outside. He says, go back again. And so the guy goes and he's running over up the hill, down the hill, goes and sees, comes back. Elijah? There's nothing. I don't see anything, no clouds, it's not overcast. And so Elijah goes back into the same position, fetal position or whatever position, and he's, he's shutting out all the outside voices because number two, faith is focused. Faith is focused. I don't care what you say, what they say, what the naysayers say, this is what God said, and this is what I'm focused on. And I'm gonna walk that out. I'm going to focus on that one thing. And as I focus on that, it starts to come more of a reality in my mind. And eventually in my heart, and eventually it'll come to pass. Faith is focused. And so he comes back, long story short, he comes back seven times. Man, that guy must have been a marathon runner seven times. He goes, 
in his heart, again, he's seeing it. The guy doesn't see it. And how many of you know you have to have that inside vision? I, I was sharing with the first service that before I speak at any event, if I've never been there before, I have a really weird request. My request is always to the organizer, can you please take a picture from the place where I will be standing? And they're like, what? Yes. If the podium or the pulpit is there, can you take a picture of what I'm going to be looking at? And they don't understand why. The reason is I'm very visual. And I need to picture myself on the inside, speaking to people effectively on the outside while standing there. I need to know what it looks like. So that when I go into the building, I tell myself, I've already been here. I know what it feels like. When I ran the New York City Marathon, I went to Central Park with my son, and I took a picture of the finish line. And I went, went to the restaurant, carbo-loaded, <laughs> big time, and then came back to the hotel, and all I did was laid there, resting my body, looking at this picture on my phone of the finish line. And David says, Dad, what are you doing? I said, son, I've got to get that finish line on the inside. I need to tell myself that I'm not going to stop for 26.2 miles until I hit the finish line. I've got to be able to see myself doing it on the inside. He was seeing the rain on the inside. And so when he comes back after seven times, he says, Elijah, I saw a cloud. He goes, that's it. He says, but it's the size of a man's hand. It's tiny. It's embryonic. It's infantile. It's minuscule. He's like, but there's a cloud. Number three, Faith celebrates small victories. Man, my body's been hurting all day for months, but today, today my big toe doesn't hurt, man. I'm gonna celebrate a small victory. Praise the Lord for that. Hey, you say amen. For some of you, for some of you, getting out of bed is a victory. And I'm not saying that sarcastically, I mean it for real. Some of you who have been stuck in anxiety and depression, getting out of bed is a victory. Making it to church is a victory. And you start to celebrate the little things and then you start to see those bigger things start to happen. But you start with the small things. For some of you, it's making your bed in the morning and that's a victory. And you celebrate and said, I haven't made my bed in years. I don't have the discipline, but now I'm doing this every day. And boy, I get up in the morning and it changes my outlook on life because I celebrate a victory. He started to celebrate the, that little cloud the size of a man's hand. And then... After he did that, he started to hear the thunder. He started to feel on the outside the wind, the breeze, the cool breeze, and the rain came. And it wasn't a drizzle. It was a torrential rain. It rained and rained and rained because number five, I think it's number five, no, number four, faith sees breakthrough on the inside before it happens on the outside. I want to pray for you this morning because some of you in this room have been stuck in that fear, which has become anxiety, which has become depression. And I'm not minimizing, and I didn't say this in the first service and I should have, I'm not minimizing the need at times for medication. I'm not minimizing that. For, I'm not. There is a need at times but it's not all the time. My heart breaks for all the children that have been diagnosed with ADHD and 75% of them are not ADHD. But they're getting medication on a day-to-day -day basis. My heart breaks for them because that has already put a label on their lives. And they just grow and that becomes who they are. And then they use that as a cop-out. Well, I'm just ADHD. When in all reality, most of them just have emotional issues that they're dealing with. And some of you, and some of you are struggling in life simply because of the things that you had to face growing up as a child, the first 11, 12 years of your life. And that's the, not the tip of the iceberg. The tip of the iceberg is what you do on the outside. We see a child who is hurting other children. They're 10, 12 years of age, and they're what we call a bully. And, and we, we see the tip of the iceberg but we don't see what's going on in the inside. We don't understand that hurt people hurt other people. You don't understand that that child has been hurt dramatically. And rather than dealing with that, we deal with the tip of the iceberg. We give them consequences and 
do all these things, but we don't deal with what's going on underneath the water. And a lot of you are dealing with those things today. Like you are adults and you're having issues in your marriage because you have yet to deal with what's underneath the water. Some of you don't even know what it is. My prayer is that you would go into that place of intimacy with God and that you would ask him as David, search my heart, O God, and put my thoughts to the test. Show me if there's any iniquity within me. Show me. Help me bring what's stuck underneath the water to bring it to a conscious awareness so that I can deal with it. Maybe you haven't forgiven somebody. Maybe you haven't forgiven yourself. Maybe you haven't accepted God's love. Maybe you were abused. We need to be more trauma-informed. There are a lot of people struggling with trauma, and we just brush it under the rug. Do you know how many people I've seen in therapy that were sexually abused as children, and I'm talking before the age of 10, which children these days are exposed to pornography and on average by the age of 10 in the United States. But how many people that I've seen that were sexually abused before 10 years of age, and they went to their parents and their parents brushed it under the rug because they were abused by a family member. And now they're 30, 40, 50 years of age and they're suffering because they just brushed it under the rug. I don't know what your issue is or what you're struggling with, but God, but God can still do a work in your life. Please uh, bow your heads and close your eyes. And let me pray. My prayer is for everyone here today that when you go into that place of intimacy with God, that you would completely surrender all that you are, everything that you are to him. You say, God, I need you. Just like Kevin Hines, when he was 70 feet under the water, he says, God, save me. God, save me. That you too would cry out, God, save me. And that you would see his precious hands pulling you out of the water. Because there are times when you feel like you're drowning.